We're in our series in 1 John, but this is the Christmas season. We won't continue 1 John until after the year starts, 2023. But I wanted to do something this morning that is more appropriate to our baptism. I'm very excited about those who will be baptized in just a bit. Most people want to change something. Most people want to look better and feel better, earn more money, and find a better job, get more stuff, receive more recognition, and find more fulfillment, and on and on and on. In fact, the basic premise of advertising is that people want to change in some sense or another. And the job of the advertiser is to convince them that his product or service can add that desired change to them. So marketing is based on a want to change. The ultimate secret to personal change that matters is found throughout biblical literature. And one such instance is found in the book of Romans. Romans is the most comprehensive theological book in the entire New Testament. It contains some of the heaviest doctrinal content in all of Scripture. It's intense. And the theme of Romans, the theme of this book, is found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Unfortunately, there's not enough time this morning to comment on both verses, so let's focus on just verse 16. Paul was the human author of Romans And in chapter 1 and verse 16, he said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Pause there for a moment. Some translations read, um, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Some translations omit the words of Christ. Uh, Those translations are taken from a different Greek text. I don't believe that's the best rendering of that phrase. It is more specific than that. It is the gospel of Christ. Remember, Christ means Messiah, the anointed one that would be king. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul uses four critical words that are crucial to understanding the essence of this verse and understanding the nuts and bolts of Christianity. The first word is gospel. Gospel. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This verse is a comment on the Christian gospel. Most people have probably heard the word gospel. There are four gospels of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, The four Gospels are four biographical accounts of Jesus' time on earth, um, written from four different perspectives. And then in our first John series, we mentioned the Gnostic Gospels, uh, Gospels such as the Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, and others. Gnosticism was a group of false teachings that had infiltrated the earliest churches. Gnostic teachers created some fraudulent forgeries of the authentic gospel, and the church fathers categorically rejected them. And then there's GMA, the Gospel Music Association, and then there's Southern Gospel Music, And on my office wall, there is a certificate under glass that reads on April 29, 1973, 
Larry Webb was solemnly and publicly set apart and ordained to the work of the gospel ministry. So gospel is probably a familiar word to most people, but most people don't have a clue as to what that word means. The word gospel essentially means glad tidings or good news. Good news. Um, I'm going to use something from Pastor Chris. He has such an impact on me on Sunday mornings. So I'm going to borrow from his vocabulary. So the word gospel, according to Chris, is uh, an awesome, awesome announcement. That's what it means. <laughs> or, or, or a super, super cool announcement. One of those. Okay. So the gospel of Christ is the good news or awesome, awesome announcement that uh, about Jesus Christ. And that gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice 1 Corinthians 15 starting at verse 1. Paul also authored this book to the congregation of ancient Corinth. Verse 1, Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. Which, meaning that gospel, Paul had preached to them, that is the gospel of Christ, also you received, and in which you stand. Verse 2, by which, meaning by that gospel, Paul preached to them, also you are saved. Notice, saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless, unless you believed in vain. Meaning someone is saved through believing the gospel of Christ, unless that someone's belief in the gospel was insincere or uh, superficial, um, then, then that's not acceptable. Notice then, um, uh, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then there's the definition of the gospel, starting in verse 3. Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus lived a life we couldn't live. He was perfect, we aren't. Jesus died a death we should have died. The first component to the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. In one of our previous congregations, there was a pastor from a neighboring church. On one Sunday morning, he said to his congregation, uh, Once I get to heaven... I'm going to show Jesus the calluses on my hands so he can see how hard I work to get there. That's a false gospel. And that gospel forgets the fact that Jesus' hands still have the scars from his crucifixion. Jesus died for our sins. That's component one. Look at verse four. And that he was buried, that's the second component, and that he rose again, the third day according to the scriptures. That's the third component. Then starting in verse 5, Paul goes on to list some persons that were actual eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The emphasis on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is so pronounced that it's sometimes referred to as the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. The literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is one of the absolute, non-negotiable, fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. Because the resurrection separates Christianity from all other religious systems. The fact Jesus was documented to be dead and buried in a tomb, and then he was seen alive again, 
is something no other religious founder can claim. There are just four religious, major religions that are based on personalities instead of philosophical propositions. Buddhism has about 350 million devotees. Buddhism is founded on the teachings of a philosopher named Siddhra Gautama, also called the Buddha. Buddha meaning the awakened one. Buddha was born in what is now Nepal and died around 400 B.C. According to Buddhism itself, Buddha's death was, quote, with that utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains behind. Paraphrased as, the body of Buddha has completely decomposed. Judaism is a smaller religion, has about 14 million members. Um, Judaism is founded in part on the teachings of Abraham. But Abraham died around 1821 B.C., Imagine that. And was buried in what is now called the West Bank in modern Israel. There was no record of Abraham returning from the dead. Islam has about 1.6 billion members and is increasing at an exponential rate. Islam was founded on the teachings of the prophet Muhammad. Muhammad died on June 8, 632 A.D., and his tomb is located underneath the Medina Mosque of the prophet located in Saudi Arabia. Muhammad is still dead. Christianity has about 1.5 billion members and is founded on Jesus Christ. And according to the historical record, Jesus is the only person that has cheated death and gotten away with it. That's the reason more and more evangelicals are calling Easter Resurrection Sunday. Because we gather together on Easter morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and its practical ramifications to us. Understand the resurrection is a non-negotiable. Some time ago I attended a two-day seminar on personal evangelism. I practice personal evangelism and I want to learn more, so I attended this seminar called Contagious Christianity. Um, It was helpful in some parts, but it was also bizarre. Uh, It was shocking, actually, because throughout each session from the instructor and throughout the entire syllabus, there was not a single mention of the resurrection of Jesus. Not one. Romans 10 verse 9 reads, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel doesn't exist apart from the resurrection because a dead Messiah cannot be the Savior. Here's the definition the gospel of Christ is the good news, or awesome, awesome announcement, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was then resurrected from the dead. Those three components uh, comprise the gospel. And through believing that message, mean believing that gospel about Jesus, someone can receive salvation. It's this simple. Man has sinned. No one is perfect. God's justice has demanded that man's sin be punished. Jesus was punished for man's sins, so man wouldn't have to be punished for those sins himself. That substitutionary sacrifice necessitated that Jesus die. So Jesus did die on a cross. And after that bloodied, brutal death, he was buried. 
but then he was resurrected from the dead. We're going to baptize in a few minutes. Each person that is baptized illustrates the gospel. Baptism is a visual aid illustrating the gospel because a person will stand in the water. That represents Jesus' death as he hung in a vertical sense on a cross. So that represents his death for our sins on the cross. Then I lower them underneath the water. That represents how Jesus was taken down dead and buried in a tomb. But then, if I remember, I bring them back up out of the water. (laughs) That represents his resurrection, that he didn't stay dead. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's the gospel illustrated each time someone is baptized. So the Christian gospel is the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And through accepting that message... Uh, someone can receive salvation. The gospel is not the Hindu tradition that bathing in the filth-infested Gandhi's river can remit someone's sins. The gospel is not positive confessions teaching that God wants us to be rich and immune to sickness. The gospel is not Buddhism's encouraging someone to find the state of enlightenment or nirvana or this oneness with ourselves or someone else said that unique ability to sit in the lotus position contemplating one's navel. That's not it. The gospel is not the watchtower Bible and tract society teaching Jehovah Witnesses to go door to door soliciting members to their cult so those witnesses can earn for themselves entrance into an ultimate recreated paradise on earth. The gospel is not The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints insisting that marriage in a Mormon temple is eternal and that celestial marriage assists someone in becoming a Mormon god or Mormon goddess and ultimately rule over other planets and through polygamous marriages procreate celestial children throughout the eternal age. Not sure why a female would want to be perpetually pregnant Uh, That doesn't seem attractive to me, but that's Mormon doctrine. The gospel is not Islam, requiring Muslims to pray five times a day, facing in the direction of a large black cubicle cobblestone located in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and then to go on a pilgrimage to that most holy site at least once during a faithful Muslim's lifetime. None of those teachings even resemble the true and authentic gospel. Those are false gospels. Because the Christian gospel is the good news, the exciting, awesome news that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, but then was resurrected from the dead. The second word is power. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I might add, are you ashamed of the gospel? Now before you answer that question, to yourself. Remember, words are cheap. Our words, our actions, our actions either confirm or contradict our words. If you are not ashamed of the gospel, when was the last time you had a spiritual conversation with a non-Christian? I don't believe it could be said that I am ashamed of the gospel. I have presented the gospel one-on-one to thousands of people. That is not a ministerial exaggeration. Thousands of people because I'm owed. I've been doing this a long time. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel means I'm not afraid to present the gospel to anyone. I would be excited to present the gospel to Mr. Biden. I would if I have that opportunity and he needs the gospel. I wouldn't hesitate to present the gospel to the president of Hell's Angels if that were possible. I would present the gospel to Mr. Putin with a translator. I would even present the gospel to Bigfoot if I could find him. No, are you ashamed of the gospel? Paul wasn't. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God. The word power in the original language is translated from the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis is mentioned 120 times in the Greek New Testament. And we get our modern words dynamo, uh, dynamic, and dynamite from this word dunamis. That means the Christian gospel is spiritual dynamite. Dunamis is translated in this verse as power. And it means not just power, but miraculous power. Power that comes only from God himself. Probably most of us have not used dynamite, uh, but dynamite is a commercial explosive uh, based on the explosive potential of nitroglycerin. Dynamite was invented in 1866 by a Swedish chemist, an engineer named Alfred Nobel. That name Nobel should sound familiar because Mr. Nobel started the famous Nobel Prizes. Dynamite is most often sewed in sticks about eight inches long and one inch thick, and it is used primarily in the mining and construction industries. Now, as a teenager, we, we did some things probably we shouldn't have done. I mean, we were into seeing things blow up, and so we would purchase cherry bombs and, and this, this, this thing called an M80. Does anyone know what an M80 is? Okay. It, it, it's, 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 we were told, we were told an M80 equaled one-fourth of a stick of dynamite. So, you know, we wanted to accumulate uh, a large quantity of M80s. But we learned later that, no, that's an urban legend. An M80 and dynamite are two different types of explosive. It was still fun, though, blowing up stuff. The point is that this dunamis, or dynamite, is powerful enough to create instantaneous and pronounced change. If enough of it is used, it can literally blow apart mountains and through a controlled blast, it can create change that in turn can be used to, dump, to do something good that benefits mankind. But the greatest power to change something is the power contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see multiple examples of that at the end of this message in the baptism portion of this service. Some people have the attitude that <clears throat> the power to change is just in trying harder. I mentioned this past month I'm currently on a diet. Thanksgiving was not helpful, <clears throat> but um, I've gained some weight and I feel sluggish. I haven't been able to train. I haven't been able to do cardio. <clears throat> I just haven't had time. So I sense a need to change. Um, and I'm having some modest success. After the first, I hope to do better. But I don't have unreasonable expectations. I mean, you know, I'm aware of these bodybuilders that have these abdominal muscles called six-packs. Um, um, probably most people have seen those. I can diet and train and train harder than ever, but I'm not going to get a six-pack. 
because I started with a keg. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Trying harder is not enough to change someone. The reason most people don't change and cannot change is because they don't possess this power to change. I heard about one vacuum cleaner salesman <clears throat> going from house to fa- house on a bright, bright summer afternoon. He got into one house and then to demonstrate his vacuum, he proceeded to dump a bunch of dirt on this woman's beautiful white carpet. And he announced, if this vacuum cleaner doesn't pick up every trace of this mess, then I promise to eat it myself. She turned around to go into the kitchen. He said, where are you going? She said, to get a spoon. Our electricity just went out. That salesman wasn't going to vacuum up that dirt because he didn't have the power to do that. The reason most people don't change and the reason most people cannot change is because most people don't have the power to change. And that's because most people haven't accepted the gospel of Christ. The average New Year's resolution lasts less than a month. And that's about how long willpower can last. We try real hard. Then we get real tired and quit. Someone is going to argue, but doesn't the Bible say that God helps those who help themselves? No, it doesn't say that. Benjamin Franklin originated that statement and it was first published in Poor Richard's Almanac in 1757. The fact that God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps the helpless And in our sin, all of us are helpless. All of us need the power that is available in the gospel. And if we have that power, then we can make some changes that we cannot make on our own. Gospel, power. And the third word is salvation. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. The word salvation is translated from the Greek word soteres. And Paul uses that noun five times in the book of Romans. He uses the corresponding verb to that word eight times in Romans. The word soteres basically means deliverance or to rescue, to rescue. And that's the point of this verse. The power that is inherent in the gospel of Jesus Christ can save someone and rescue them from sin rescue them from all the negative consequences from sin. And that includes the ultimate consequence, tormented eternal separation from God. Some progressive secularists object to us using those words salvation and being saved because according to them, the ideas those words communicate are out of date and meaningless to contemporary society. But salvation is the word God uses. And there is not a better word to describe what can happen to someone who accepts Jesus. In our first congregation, we had a man um, who'd been a severe alcoholic. He'd had five VUIs. He was a functioning alcoholic. He had five DUIs. He had been arrested for some form of alcoholism 44 times. He'd been to AA. It didn't work. Uh, his wife would pour his, his alcohol down the drain. He would buy more. He couldn't stop. His mother said, Jimmy, you need Jesus. 
And one night, in absolute desperation, he got down on his knees at his bed. He said, Jesus, if you're there, I need you. I I can't stop. I can't solve this problem. I need you. Please, please come into my life. He got up from his knees. He instantly lost all desire for alcohol. If he were to walk past a store, a liquor store, he would get physically nauseous from that point on. He became a dynamic, dynamic Christian. And that's what can happen to someone who accepts the gospel. That a Christian can be saved and rescued from destructive habits and hang-ups. Saved and rescued from bitterness, from purposelessness, from confusion, from mediocrity, from unhappiness, from emptiness, from depression, from loneliness, from guilt, from dysfunctional relationships, from emotional pain, from sickness and disease, from eternal judgment and hell. We can be rescued from all of that. Salvation can save and rescue someone from all that might be a consequence from sin. The exciting thing about salvation is that it's free. We can do nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to merit it. We can do nothing to deserve it. And that's because salvation is a gift from God because of His grace. I've said this often. Grace is most often defined as when God gives us what we don't deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Now the counter to that is mercy. Mercy is defined as when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. As an example, if we'd committed a serious crime and we had uh, been tried for that crime and a jury of our peers had convicted us of committing that crime and we were waiting to be sentenced, we would want the judge to be merciful toward us. We we might, since we are guilty of that crime, we might deserve a long prison sentence, but we would want the judge to be merciful and give us a shorter sentence. That's grace and that's mercy. Grace and mercy combined together, resulting in salvation, can be defined as when God gives us what we need instead of what we deserve. When God gives us what we need, instead of what we deserve. David Hager used to be a referee in an umpire in baseball and softball leagues, adult leagues. And he wrote an interesting article that uh, was printed in the LA Times. He said, I was driving too fast in the snow one day in Boulder, Colorado, that was his residence, when a policeman pulled me over and issued me a speeding ticket. I tried to talk him out of it by telling him how concerned I was about my insurance premiums going up and what a careful driver I normally am. I begged him to let me off, but he wasn't cooperative. He said that if I didn't like it, I could just go to court. The first game of the next softball season, I was umpiring behind home plate. And the first batter up was that same policeman. I recognized him, and he recognized me. He seemed nervous. And he asked, so how did things go with that ticket? I just stared at him, and then I told him, you'd better swing at everything. (laughs) (laughs) The point is, some people don't extend much grace, but God does. And even though we don't deserve salvation, God offers it to us if we would just accept it. Gospel, power, salvation. And then the fourth word is believe. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The Greek meaning the Gentile, the non-Jewish person. First notice that salvation is available to all people. Paul uses the word everyone. And then notice the chronological order to salvation. First, there was the Jewish population. Why were the Jews first? to be made aware of salvation because the Jews were God's covenant people and Jesus himself was a Jewish man and then the gospel was to be extended to the Greek person meaning to the non-Jewish Gentile person and that would be most of us but don't miss the fact that the personal reception of salvation is contingent on someone believing on the gospel of Christ In the original language, believe means to trust in, to put our reliance in, to put our confidence in. Believing is the same as faith. When the word believe is used in the New Testament as a reference to salvation, it is most often used in the present continuous tense. And so it can also be translated as is believing or is continuing to believe. That means someone who believes the gospel is going to continue to believe that gospel. And if he doesn't continue to believe and at some point rejects that gospel, then that's evidence his earlier belief was artificial, superficial, and or ingenuine. He was never a real Christian. I'm going to conclude with this. Uh, I'm going to share a visual aid I use in presenting the gospel. Some of you here, I've presented you the gospel, and you've heard this. This is critical. It is important to understand there are two components to believing. First, there's an intellectual component. It starts in the mind. And that means from an intellectual perspective, we need to agree to the basic facts about something. From an intellectual perspective, we must determine what is true or not true about something. And then... After the intellectual component, there's a volitional component. Um, And that means we need to exercise our will and determine to trust what our mind now knows to be true. We need to act on what we now intellectually know to be true. It happens each time I sit in a chair. Each time I sit in a chair, or in this case, a stool, um, I'm exercising believing Because from an intellectual perspective, in a microsecond, I agree to the fact that this stool beside me is strong enough to support my body weight. And then from a volitional perspective, I exercise my will and decide to actually sit down on this stool and actually trust it to hold me up. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm sitting down on this stool. I'm putting my entire body weight on this stool. I'm trusting it. I'm putting my reliance in this stool, my confidence in this stool to hold me up. Now, I have to be honest, it's a little wobbly. Um, (laughs) Which, of course, is unrelated to the weight. But anyway, so first there was an intellectual component, meaning that my mind determined that this stool was strong enough to support me. And then there was a volitional component, meaning that I decided to trust this stool to support me, and I demonstrated that trust 
through sitting down on that stool. That's the essence of what it means, people, to believe in something. And that's what is required to receive salvation and receive the different changes that salvation can bring to someone. Salvation is the same as sitting down on the gospel stool. It is trusting in, putting our confidence and reliance in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation is not found in self-effort. It's not in baptism. It's not in moral reform. It's not in membership in some church. It's not in being a good person. And that is a relative term. It's not in even professing to be a Christian. Salvation is in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is totally trusting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to save us. There is no plan B. There is no contingency. There is no loophole. There is no alternative solution. Salvation is the same as sitting on the gospel stool and trusting it to save us. It is trusting Jesus plus or minus nothing. It doesn't matter if your personal contributions to philanthropic causes to assist the poor and destitute match Mother Teresa's. The question is, have you sit on that stool? It doesn't matter if you were a straight-A student, the teacher's pet, and voted most likely to succeed at something. The question is, have you sat on that stool? It doesn't matter if you've been baptized, catechized, homogenized, galvanized, soldered, and welded. It doesn't matter. Have you sat on that stool? It doesn't matter if your father was a preacher. The notorious outlaw, Jesse James' father, was a Baptist preacher. It doesn't matter if you are the proverbial all-around good guy that would give someone the shirt off his back. It doesn't matter. People, the question is, have you sat on that stool? Has there been a specific moment in time, space, history when you sat on the gospel stool and asked Jesus to save you? On Sunday night at about 10.30 in a small house located at 7735 Jefferson Street on the southwest Missouri side of Kansas City and I have been there a number of times since. I remember this as if it were yesterday. I was six years, two months and five days of age. I sat on that gospel stool. I remember I got down on my knees and I prayed. And I said, Jesus, please come into my life. I'm a sinner. Please save me. And guess what? He did. And he started a process of change in me that hasn't stopped and won't stop until I see him face to face. I want us to bow our heads, would we? We're going to pray. I want to dismiss all of the candidates for baptism at this time. If you're a baptism candidate, slip out quietly if you would. And then I'll pray. And then we're going to sing a song as we prepare for baptism. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. A very simple, simple sermon. uh, The gospel. And I just pray, Father, if there's anyone in this room that hasn't trusted that gospel hasn't believed in that gospel, hasn't invited Jesus into their life for themselves, I pray, God, they would come to me after this service and say, Pastor, please, please, I, uh, I want to make an appointment. I want to sit down with you, and I want to make sure I have, I have Jesus. Nothing would make heaven happier, and nothing would make me happier. So, Father, I pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, 
that before, before this day's even through, they'll make that decision to know you. Thank you for what we've learned and bless as we see some amazing baptisms. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.